Hi, and welcome back to another Tap Talks HR podcast. Today I have with me Joe Drury, TAP's Senior Inclusion Consultant and co-author of our recent Inclusive Organisations report. Hi, Joe. Welcome back to Tap Talks HR podcast. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Well, today we're back talking about inclusion again. And the, the one topic we're really going to focus in on is, is resistance to inclusion and resistance to inclusion activities, to be more precise, because that's something that a number of our customers are, are bringing up as actually one of their key barriers to be able to increase inclusion inside of their organization. So why don't you get us going by speaking about the different types and levels of resistance to inclusion activities and what, what do we mean by this to begin with? Yeah, sure. I, I think um, one of the things that I've certainly seen in a lot of the work that I've done um, and some of the, the interactions that I've had and things that I've been involved in, um, discussions and whatnot, a lot that centres around this is is almost an assumption that uh, a lot of organisations feel they would be able to easily spot resistance um, and that there's an, an increasing amount of, of buy-in. And whilst on the surface, I would agree that there's an increasing increasing amount of buy-in and that people understand why it's important, um, I think that buy-in is very nuanced, as is the resistance. So I think we often caricature... I, I refer to it as caricaturing... Um, resistance, uh, almost as if it's going to be somebody there holding a picket sign, uh, looking very angry. Um, and that's very rarely the case. What that then leads to is almost, again, an, an equally sort of extreme or um, caricature version of how people feel they would hypothetically deal with that type of resistance that they're infrequently actually met with. Um, so we readily identify what we would call obvious resistance, this, again, is going to be different for different types of people, depending on their own experience, um, insight, um, and I guess the visibility that, that any given person would have um, of, of the people in their workforce. Um, but when we see it in its extreme forms, that does cloud um, our sort of approach to overcoming all the nuances. Um, I think we see... I know that we've talked as we've um, as we co-authored the report that we recently released that you often find that there is an assumed dichotomy of people who would resist inclusion activity uh, in organisations, and the, the two sort of factors of that dichotomy that I would suggest uh, very simply is is more of a, a spectrum. Um, but at the two ends there, you've got people who would be classed as you know outright bigoted and loud about it. And the people who are, you know, uh, away from that resistance is those people who are super woke. I think it's probably a, a slang term that would be used for it nowadays. Um, and actually the, the, the two sort of main, again, this is very simplistic, uh, but the two main groups who might, you know, obviously resist it would be the underrepresented communities themselves. Um, and the overrepresented communities. Um, and often, um, in brief, the, the underrepresented communities may well resist inclusion activity because um, it's something that either in the organisation they're in now or somewhere else earlier in their career journey, they've experienced over-promising and under-delivering on diversity and inclusion. They may have also... Um, 
taken part in or come forward and voiced certain things to help move that along and been met with hostility or or been let down in some sort of way. So often it's a, a f- I, I won't believe it until I see it kind of um, approach or, or feeling that they might have. Or it might even be that depending on the diversity within that workforce, they feel they're often the person who's targeted to do all the work. Um, and I think sometimes, which I feel is very understandable, it doesn't mean that you don't want to be involved in the cause. If, you fit, if you're getting a bit of fatigue of being, you know, the constant go-to to provide answers on certain things. Um, and that's a whole other podcast in itself. Um, and then the overrepresented groups. Um, I think this really comes down to a lot of things to do with a lot of myths that are perpetuated. So those myths, um, and we can we can talk about this, I'm sure, as we go on through this, this session, and um, we mention it in the report, are um, what I call the scarcity myth, um, which is where there seems to be an idea that there is an, a, a finite pie um, and that we all get a piece of it um, and that if we are overrepresented and we have a bigger piece of it, then in order for other people to do well and in order for me to get on board with this inclusion activity, it means that I'm conceding something. Um, and the other myth is meritocracy, which is that, you know, uh, you know, times have moved on far enough now that it should all, it, it is all based on merit, which, as we know, is not the case um, in its simplest form. It's also far more complex in that, you know, people who are in underrepresented communities won't have had the same path or the same sort of level of access or even perceived access um, in their journey to getting where they are now. Um, and often we find those things are kind of uh, repeated over and over again. Um, and that becomes almost like a, you know, something that's that's taken as read that that's the case. Um, and another thing that gets in the way with um, the overrepresented groups, and again, we can talk about this more as we go on, is this often taboo, very uncomfortable topic of privilege. Um, I would suggest that, so I often identify um, three types um, within those kind of groups, and these largely sit with those overrepresented groups. Um, I identify, and this is very much a Joeism, um, but that you get overt resistance, which is um, your almost, you know, you could almost see them as an anti-inclusion activist. Um, and they will often voice their opinions on things when they feel at risk uh, in some way or another, whether that's a scarcity thing or whether it's even that they are due to be um, disciplined for something to do with their behaviour around inclusion. Uh, you might hear a lot about this around exit interviews. And if it's not something that you see in your own organisation, it might be something that you hear in the news or, or in a, some other media format. Then I'd say there's covert. Um, your covert examples are people who identify, even if subconsciously, they identify and surround themselves with and stick with groups of people who share their opinion. Um, and that then becomes, whether it's online, which may well be more the case with the environment that we're in um, and have been in the last year and a half, or whether that's face-to-face and it's a, um, you know, a, a drink after work. 
they often then just kind of perpetuate and reinforce those opinions amongst themselves, but wouldn't necessarily voice it out loud in any environment where they felt that um, you know they were going to get called up on it. And that can be quite dangerous, really. That can be quite a sort of sinister underlying factor that really perpetuates it. The final version um, is what I call apathetic. Um, and some people might say, well, if you're apathetic um, in that you are more indifferent, really, to what's going on, is that really resistance? Now, as with any culture change and shift that needs to reach a tipping point in order to really experience exponential success and progress and sustainability, yes, it is resistance. So often this type of resistance, we don't really hear about or see it. Um, we don't always dig into what's behind that or, or where it is. Um, and it's often just an internal uh, resistance from that individual. What I'm not saying is that we should be, you know, um, prying into people's thoughts um, and, you know, um, kind of trying to pull that out of people. What, what I am saying is that lack of buy-in and what's driving it is going to impact that person's behaviour and what they're willing to do, say, and champion. Um, and, and there really is a degree of, of it being, you know, if you're not with it as a general concept of creating an inclusive environment, then you are kind of against it because you are one extra person who is not getting on the proverbial seesaw to reach that, um, that tipping point. Um, and even senior leaders regularly fall into this category, often unknowingly. So that they're some of the thoughts that I have around the complexity of the topic of resistance and, and that an important one to understand, really. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you talked about complexity at, at some point, and you also talked about the simplicity yeah. that, that you're, yeah. you're, you're explaining it. And it's actually, because it is so complex, actually sometimes it's useful to break these things down into uh, more simpler elements. The problem is you can get very much shouted down uh, by yeah. different elements of society. If you, if you come across in your soundbite with a simplistic element, and I mean, I was just listing some of the different areas you were, you were covering there and I won't read them all off, but I've, I've got half a page here. <laughs> and, but I love that, that, that bit that you said about the covert, overt and apathetic three yeah. areas in the end and how apathetic um, is actually going with it. And I think it's that social acceptability, isn't it? Because it if is, you think yeah. about, if you saw a, an eight-year-old child in a street being mugged with their mobile phone, you would jump in and help them. You wouldn't stand to one side and go, well, where's the police uh, kind of thing. So there's yes. that aspect of actually by standing to one side and allowing this kind of resistance to inclusion, be it covert or over, you are part of the problem. Yeah, you are. And I think it's really it's really interesting. And again, a whole nother podcast and then some would be um, the topic of call out cultures. Um, and I say call out cultures rather than cancel cultures, which is part of a huge debate at the moment for anyone who's interested do go and do some some sort of research around um some of these areas and i would suggest to get some reliable um uh, sort of content or at least a direction to go in i would point people first to the mckinsey website um, because there's all sorts of stuff of course written and all sorts of echo chambers around 
um, and, and wherever you fall on the, the argument or the discussion, it's important to understand um, the complexity, again, of things like call-out culture versus cancel culture. Um, and I won't go into it today because um, in the name of time, but when it comes to things like call-out, I'll, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's a tattoo artist. He owns a, he rents a studio uh, that's above a barber's. And this friend of mine is um, incredibly um, sort of considered in the way he thinks about things. He's a very um, empathic person. Um, and he was tattooing uh, a young woman. And when he left for that day, um, the people, the, the sort of staff in the barbers, a few of them were talking to him saying, you know, oh, you know, she was attractive and started just having what they had deemed banter, which in itself is a, a, a dangerous word at times. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We've, we've already signed on to an, a, a load of the podcast today. Um, and, and I said to him, because we have this kind of friendship, I said, what did, what did you do? And he said, well, I felt really uncomfortable. And, but he didn't do anything about it. And this is the type of person who is actually probably further in that end of the spectrum, particularly as an ally and more of an overrepresented person himself with his characteristics, who said, well, you know, I, I couldn't because, um, you know, I rent this from them and, and, and I, I have to see them every day and et cetera, et cetera. And that, this is what we're talking about. This is where people don't necessarily, um, they don't disagree with it. Um, they may even agree readily with a lot of it, but it's how that belief and those values are actually put into action in those times that you can't plan for. Yeah, and, and again, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because actually that resistance and, and that apathetic resistance then in organisations can be what's, what's going to be the effect if I say something against yes. my group, my yes. mini culture, my team, will mm. I ostracized because I, I'm doing something that's right exactly. rather than going along with the with the flow of the group exactly and this and this for me is again you know you can liken that you know inclusion isn't just a, a sort of um, standalone siloed um, department movement um, important element of what we do um, it is part of it's a huge part of culture and it links to everything else we do around behavior, culture, um, you know, working environments, employer value propositions. Um, and as we've said in the report, organizations are in whatever size or form they come, microcosms of society. So if we can't demonstrate these behaviors in a work environment and if organizations don't bring this into the fray as something that is important, then we're not going to affect what we really need to. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that's quite interesting in itself when talking about resistance, because actually, as an organisation, we have very explicit rules about behaviour inside yeah. the organisation, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, probably more explicit than actual general society at the moment, because there's a whole argument at the moment in the UK, especially about freedom of speech and what can be said and can't be said. But actually, in organisations, I think we have much more tighter, socially acceptable rules so actually we can lead the way in organizations yes. about what yeah. is resist what you can say can't say yeah and even in that you know as, as someone who you know and obviously it's a, it's a big area that, that you have a lot of expertise in Anthony is, is culture change um, and you know 
organizational behaviors and values and it's some it's the mainstay of my um, work in history is in leadership development and culture development and with values you know often I'll say are they that's great but are they lived or are they laminated and put upon a wall and nobody you know people struggle to even recall what they are um and so part of that it's not about I think we need to be careful what we're prescribing to people what we're making a mandatory test what we're doing a sheet dip and actually what we need to spend more time doing is um even if you've got to take some of the money away from uh doing a really attractive piece of branding around your values Take the time to let people experiment with what those values mean to them individually so that they're not just prescribed. It doesn't feel like you're just doing as you're told, but actually you can understand how it fits into your world. Yeah, and if you're if, and one of the most common values, isn't it, is integrity or there's something around how we interact with our colleagues. Yeah. And actually, if we're going to overcome resistance to inclusion, then actually allowing people to fully immerse themselves into that value and actually live it is yeah. actually going to be a great it, weapon, really, isn't it, it? It's it's huge. And it's another one that you'll often see is passion, for example. And I've said to people previously, am I passionate? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, how do you know? And they'll say, because I do my sometimes metaphorical, sometimes not jazz hands. And I'm quite a, an, an extroverted, uh, animated person. Um, if you then look at somebody like, for example, David Attenborough, is he passionate? Yes, he absolutely is. Does he do the jazz hands, the loud voice, et cetera, and the, the, the cartwheels? No, he doesn't, because that turtle would run a mile. So it's about understanding that those values can be flexible and they're parameters of what is and isn't acceptable, but allowing people to experiment with what this means to them rather than forcing it on them um, is really important. And I think that kind of links back into the, the council culture versus call-out culture. You've exactly. got to allow people to have a debate, to, have, to allow um, understanding yes. to happen. Yes. So when we talk about what is driving resistance, we there is so much with with those myths that we've talked about, and with the you know particularly with the scarcity one. We our confirmation bias kicks in when you know we delete, we distort, and we generalize information to fit our map of the world. Um, and to almost to reassure ourselves, really. And a lot of what can drive resistance, um, particularly around the topic of privilege, is shame. And when it comes to shame, which is the antidote of empathy um, and vice versa. If we um, kind of create this environment, like you were saying, where um, it is a, you know, regardless of what's happened, rather than creating a learning opportunity for somebody who has said or done something that they shouldn't have done, um, if they are met with a tirade of shame inducing consequences or comments. Now, for me, there's a balance. There's a balance between cuddling people unnecessarily. Um, and really thinking about how we shame people because nobody learned anything from being shamed and humiliated. Um, and you could say, well, you know, why should we? Well, because if we want progress um, and we want to evolve, that's what we need. And it's about striking that balance between allowing people to be accountable and really knowing the difference between what is shaming and what induces guilt. Because whilst shame is inversely correlated with proactive progress, guilt is actually correlated with that. 
Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? it it's it, the, the danger of shame is actually someone who's trying to be active in an inclusion conversation, but might not have the exact words uh, to to articulate themselves, but are trying. The shame then puts them into that apathetic category, doesn't it? And then they'll Absolutely. just become another person joining the conversation. So. Yes. Just want to move this on now because yeah. one of the most key people inside of organizations are, are senior leaders. So, yeah. when you're thinking about senior leaders, they have a real complex role in a, a, addressing resistance. And so, how does this play out? What have you seen in your experience? So, with a lot of the, the senior leaders we find, so one of the main main things to take into consideration is that in a lot of organizations, we still have. Um, you know, it's still overwhelmingly weighted um, in favour of your overrepresented um, communities or characteristics. So typically they would be um, of a certain age, white, uh, cisgendered male, um, straight and generally fairly able. Now, what, what that means is you often do get a lot of this um, as kind of assumption that it's based on meritocracy. Um, you also find a lot of um, shame, which is, is deep rooted in a, I don't want to admit to um, having an easier route to getting where I've got to today, um, because that makes that person feel like they've not necessarily earned it. Um, and, you know, that can, that can feel difficult and hard to do, and it can feel vulnerable. Um, and I think we need to look at how we enable senior leaders to be more vulnerable. Um, and when I say vulnerable, I'm talking about vulnerability of strength. Uh, I'm not talking about often what we see as synonymous in society with vulnerability, and that's weakness. Um, I would suggest that it's the exact opposite of that. And it really does enable that empathy, that listening, and a really, really powerful level of humility that not only makes you an increasingly better, more effective, um, more versatile leader, it also, and resilient, by the way, it also um, allows you to model things to the up and coming uh, future leadership generations and it, it brings a real meaning to what you're saying rather than it appearing like lip service and so there's certain things that more privileged senior leaders won't necessarily pick up on that easily so the things that I'm referring to there are things like microaggressions so microaggressions are things that can happen that are um, either um, not intended um, or feel trivial to the perpetrator um, and that might be things like assumptions that are made based on um, somebody's characteristics um, that almost kind of hold them back or make them feel uncomfortable. Um, it's, it's things that happen in the day to day. Um, and we could go on forever giving examples of, of microaggressions, but do go and read upon that. Often they can be perpetuated or certainly enabled by senior leaders. Um, and again, this is your example of not somebody who's bigoted, not somebody who's woke, uh, and I say those in inverted commas, but um, just that lack of awareness. Um, and I think sometimes there's almost this level of pride that um, when it comes to inclusion, they should know everything that's going on. They should also be the experts in it because they're the decision makers and the, the leaders in this organisation. Um, again, demonstrating a level of humility, particularly to those diverse communities. Um, real appropriate curiosity modeling what that looks like because again 
the the whole well I'm just not gonna say much to somebody who's different to me because I don't want to say the wrong thing where that's where a lot, a lot of people have landed that is your apathetic resistance um, because if we're not curious then we're not going to move on. We're not going to be able to understand what we need to do in all its nuances for sustainability. Uh, we're not going to understand all the ripple effects and what links to what we're doing. So we're just going to end up doing ad hoc, transactional, um, not particularly meaningful things that don't provide much return on investment. Um, but we're also going to miss the big picture. It's going to appear like lip service to those people. Um, and they're going to feel that promises are, are being broken. Um, it's modelling that it's okay even to talk about their own privilege. So one of the things that um, I've been offering to my clients is leadership coaching. So I, I, I'm a, a qualified and I do a lot of uh, exec coaching in general. But what I also do, um, and, and what we also do, Anthony, is bring that through an inclusion lens and when asked if that why that's coaching and not consultancy it's because it's really about digging into the barriers at uh, the personal um, you know sometimes emotional barriers that hold those leaders back from being able to be the most effective inclusive leader and so it's it's opening up discussions about privilege and then being able to pay that forward into the wider organization creating an environment where discomfort can be effectively leaned into if you really want to help diverse communities, you really want to celebrate the cause and champion it and, and demonstrate more than just theoretical buy-in, then you need to be uncomfortable sometimes. Um, you know, that that's that's what is is required. Um, and keep the the shameful voice of your internal persecutor at bay. Um, demonstrating that humility is strength and really going out there and talking about how um, you have experienced levels or pockets of privilege in your life, um, demonstrating that more than just, again, saying, I buy into this and I'm going to go and do this course, um, talking about in depth, colloquially, in a humble way, what learning are you doing? What are you doing to take accountability for your own education? Um, and, you know, why and, and how can you help point other people in that direction? You know, that really is modelling um, what to do. Um, and then, you know, things like listening to things that you're asking for again. So if you're getting regular feedback from your um, group of employees, um, listen to it, check back. Um, I don't ever think that you can uh, appear to be listening too much um, because, again, often when we're from privileged backgrounds or pockets of privilege and we've professionally been brought up um, expecting to achieve uh, a million and one things by yesterday and we're in fast-paced environments, often we want to be able to fix things. And this is often what keeps senior leaders and decision makers in the ballpark of using diversity metrics and figures as measurements of inclusion when actually that's that's quite a, um uh i would suggest a mistake that a lot a lot of people make is there's no narrative around those metrics and they don't actually give away anything about how inclusive your your culture is so rather than trying to quickly go for what you need to rather than almost doing the sympathy thing of going oh well i can try and fix this for you the first step needs to be empathic listening, modeling that, and that will take you a hell of a lot further to build on.
So, it's, so there's so much stuff there that leaders can do. I like the the fact that you talked about vulnerability, vulnerability which is a word yeah. I struggle to say, obviously. Um, <laughs> but that almost leans then into role modelling, doesn't it? And and yeah. you talk right at the end about listening, and and there's the concept by is it Marshall Goldsmith that's about feed forward rather yes. than feedback. That actually great leaders go and seek out uh, feedback before. That, that it turns up to them. And if you're a, a great leader and, and we're talking about inclusion and talking about trying to overcome resistance to inclusion and actually going out and talking about the subject of inclusion openly and outwardly rather than in a more compliance kind of way and actually saying, how are we doing? Talk to me. How am I doing? That yes. fits into that vulnerability. That fits into that role modeling. And it, I think, it does. yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It, I think the other thing is understanding what goes along with that. So again, don't make those your your headline comments that you go out and ask for. Think about what you're going to do after that. So if you do get some feedback that feels like a bitter pill to swallow, um, have plans for how you're going to respond to that. And again, it's okay. And it's all part of that modeled uh, human humility to say, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to ask if it's okay to have some time to reflect on that. Um, because again, you're demonstrating that you're listening by not going, okay, and then having a passive aggressive rant to yourself on the way home. Yeah, and I have to say, we've we've completely run out of time on the yeah, podcast no, yet no, again. No. And, and we've already said we're going to, there's like five in the pipeline <laughs> we could do if we needed to. But I, I, I'm, resistance is such a huge topic. Uh, is, around yeah. inclusion and there's so many different facets of it as you've described in the, the the half an hour that we've just taken i suppose from my point of view if you're going to give one or two pointers to 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 people that they can go away with and just look at re in, uh, resistance to inclusion in their own organizations what would those couple of bits be yeah i think i think there's uh, i'm going to snatch three here and i'll be quick um <laughs> i think the um the, the main point i'd say is understand um, even get advice and guidance on how to translate um, the causes of resistance to inform your approach um, because not one size fits all um, but a size that can flex and take multiple drivers experience and motivations into account can be incredibly effective secondly i would say you know you often hear people talking about um, understanding what's in it for me for different people and I would also say what's not in it for me um, and for that what I mean is uh, yes we should be able to easily identify a lot of inclusion activity as the right thing to do and people at all levels in the organization should be able to do that and no we shouldn't cuddle people uh, I say that in inverted commas um, who um, have experienced more privilege and are resistant um, however just as inclusion has a lot of um, commercial benefits alongside the right to do moral and ethical benefits. Um, there are individual benefits for people as well. And if we take the time to really unpick what those things are and create an environment where there's healthy discourse around it, rather than, you know, po polarized attacks, that is also important. And finally, what I would say is think about what it would mean in your organization and how it might look in your organization to start being able to open the doors to turning apathy into empathy. And don't confuse empathy with sympathy there. The two are very different. And turning assumption into appropriate curiosity. They're some of the questions that I would start to ask and be creative about. 
Joe, there's there's such a wealth of, of stuff that we, you talk about when we have one of our podcasts together, and I know there's so much more we could uh, go down in little rabbit holes here and there and everything. Absolutely. But thanks, thanks for your time today, uh, and hopefully, uh, people listening in will have, have got a, a wealth of ideas from listening to you. So thanks a lot for joining. You're me. very welcome. Thanks again for having me, Anthony. No worries. And if you are interested in what you're hearing from Joe or myself, then you can always reach out to us at the tapsolutions.com website or through the Tap Talks HR podcast provider where you're, you're at. A great place to start would actually be coming uh, to the website and downloading the reports that Joe co-authored around inclusive organisations where you can actually then see the framework that we've put together that can actually help you start thinking about how to build inclusion in your organisation. So that's tapsolutions.com. But that's it for now from Joe and I. Um, We'll be back soon again with another Tap Talks HR podcast. But that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.